when the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every nation and tribe and language and people. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads on myriads and thousands and thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's Revelation 5 and it's verses 8 through 14. Um, reading that today because it is um, Trinity Sunday 2021 and and so we're called to reflect on what does it mean to believe in the Trinity not three gods but three in one and it's a difficult thing to to get your head around because it's not something that that makes natural sense and so the explanations for the Trinity are not easy to deal with um, because what it what it basically is saying is these are what we this is what we mean and this is not what we mean. It's something like this would be a decent summary. The Trinity isn't belief in three gods. There's only one God, and we must never stray from this. This God exists as three persons, but the three persons aren't part of God. They're each fully God and equally God. Within God, one's God's one undivided being. There's an unfolding into three interpersonal relationships such that there are three persons. They're not distinctions of essence because they're the same essence, and neither are they something added on to the essence. They're the unfolding of one's God's one undivided being into three relationships such that there are three real persons. He's not a person who takes on three consecutive roles. He did not become the Son and then the Holy Spirit. Nope, they always have been and always will be three distinct persons in the Trinity. And it's not a contradiction because God is not three in the same way he is one. God is in one in essence, three in person. It's a difficult thing to understand. There's a, there's a long creed written by St. Athanasius, and it attempts to say, okay, this is what you have to believe to understand the Trinity. And, and it, it's um, difficult in some ways to read, but other ways it's easy to read. It goes back a long, long way, to be honest with you. It goes back to the 4th century, and it's when the church was grappling with the idea of what is the Trinity, and what do we mean when we say that? And so that's how the Nicene Creed comes about. There are certain kinds of decisions that had to be made when you come to the Nicene Creed, and we're just going to look at it really briefly before we look at the lessons. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of all that is, seen and unseen. It's pretty simple, right? We believe in one God. And then we say who he is, the Father, the Almighty, maker of all that is, seen and unseen. And then we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. So he's not born, he's not um, sired, as it were. He is, he's not the Father of Jesus in the sense that, that he did anything other than he came forth from the Father. 
that would be what eternally begotten was. And he is the only son of God. We maybe have the spirit of adoption, but he is the only true son of God in that way. But he is not a son in the sense that, that there was a man and a woman came together in order to form him. He is begotten of the Father. I mean, he came from his being. And then they go on to say, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial of one being with the Father. And that's where the, the not compromise, but the word came in, of one being with the Father, of one essence with the Father. And what that means, the Greek word um, means, is, is that, that they are, of, that whatever the Father is, is, the Son is. It's the same essence. It's the, there's nothing different about the Father and the Son. They're the same essence. They're one being together <clears throat> through him, through Christ. All things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. And so the Holy Spirit is the agency through which Jesus becomes a man and comes into the world. And so there, there's a a special relationship there but the Holy Spirit is involved in all this and so the Trinity is working together all the time and then we go on and, and the rest of the confession about Jesus for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate he suffered death and was buried on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end so there's our um, confession of Jesus that we say in the Nicene Creed and, and in the Anglican world we, we say that whenever we gather for communion that's the confession we make at communion and it's part of the confession that enables our communion with one another because what it does is it draws our beliefs the credo which means I believe it draws our beliefs into one and we as a congregation then stand together not just with one another but through the church down through the ages and the church even now as it exists that confesses these truths and so there are two confessions that are necessary in order to come to confession or to communion I'm sorry at least in the Anglican world and that those confessions are the confession of what we believe and we believe that that, that confession needs to be uh, in line with what the church has always believed about Jesus. It, it doesn't mean that we just say the words but keep our fingers crossed. It's not supposed to mean that at all. What, it, what it's intended for is to say this is the standard of Christian belief. And it's the, it's the place on which we take our stand for all time. And, and it's the thing that we believe that, that the confession that we make, the, the positive confession that that this is what Christians down the ages have believed is necessary to believe for one to be saved by the blood of Jesus. You can't just confess, I believe Jesus died on a cross and, and be saved. No, there's a whole complex of things that we need to believe about Jesus in order to receive salvation and all the benefits that come from communion, for instance. It, it's, it's the confession that he and the Father are one that they are one being, that he was the only eternally begotten Son of the Father, which means there was never a time when he was not. So Jesus has existed from forever. I mean, there's, there's not a time when Jesus didn't exist. And so the revelation of Jesus comes, certainly, in, in many different ways. And the final revelation comes in, in the incarnation. God became man in the form of Jesus enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit.
And so when we make our confession, we confess all these things about Jesus, that his death had meaning, that it was the atoning sacrifice, that he took on our sins in order that we might take on his righteousness, in order that we might have what Paul says is the spirit of adoption, crying out, Abba, Father. It's what enables us to move from being creatures to children. We're a special kind of creature because we were created in his, in his image and, and he breathed the spirit of life into us and that we, we might have a relationship with him. But, but still, we are not children of God until we make this confession, until we understand and believe these things about Jesus, all these things that his crucifixion was the, was the death of sin in me, the death of judgment in me, and that when he died, I too am considered dead and then raised with him in baptism to new life. And it's intended to be a new life. It's intended to be a radical break with the old life, the life of the flesh. Now we're to live a life of the Spirit because God gives his indwelling Spirit, his own being in us in order that we might become more like him, in order that we might continue every single day of our lives to desire to become more and more like him through the example that we have of his son, Jesus, who is the eternal, eternally begotten one of the Father. And then, so then after the crucifixion, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. We believe that Jesus was bodily resurrected by the dead, from the dead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, three days after the crucifixion. And then 40 days later, he ascended, rose to the right hand of God. And we believe that the, the scriptures in Revelation 5 give us a true and accurate testimony of what happens when Jesus passes through the clouds and into the heavens. That he comes before the throne and appears as a lamb looking like it was slain. And then that lamb then takes the scroll of judgment the scroll of Revelation, from the one seated on the throne, who is obviously the Father. And then what we see in that passage that I read at the beginning is the worship of heaven now sees these two as equally deserving of worship. And then ten days after that from human times, what we see is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit Jesus had promised, the paraclete, the helper, the one that would lead us into all truth after he had gone. And so now we have and we live in the age of the Spirit. We live after the age of the revelation of Jesus in the flesh. Now we live in the age of the Spirit. And so we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. Well, you can only worship and glorify him if he is one with the Father and the Son. Now, there's some controversy and has been for over a thousand years about this whole who proceeds from the Father and the Son. What does that mean? And so in the Western Church, we confess that, that there's a dual procession, that he comes from the Father and the Son. In the Eastern Church, there's only the confession that he, comes, he proceeds from the Father, because they see that all things proceed from the Father. And so we have a Trinitarian uh, discussion, let's say, or disagreement about language there. And it's not surprising we would have human disagreements about language. I don't doubt that we ultimately mean the same thing, but... What we need is is some way uh, of reconciling those statements. And so what do we mean by that? Do we mean that there, there's somehow or another it proceeds from two different places? Or, or do we mean that there's sort of a, a one, two, three kind of a thing? It's No, because the, the Spirit has always been present. The Spirit was given in the Old Testament to those who had specific tasks to do. 
And so we can see the coming of the Spirit on those in, in that way. In the Old Testament, there's a Spirit given to somebody to, to accomplish a particular task, whether that's a prophetic task, a leadership task, or even the people who made the accoutrement for the temple. Because it says they were given the Spirit of God. And so, so what is the point and the purpose of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, and is it there? And yes, we see when Jethro comes in Exodus and, and comes and says to his son-in-law Moses that this is not good. You're, you're causing everybody to line up every single day and come to you for judgment in their disputes. No, 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 no. What you need to do is deputize some people. And so what they did was they raised up 70 elders, and, and some of the spirit that was on Moses was taken and given to them. So what we see in the Old Testament is, is this um, purposeful, intentional, and um, not often giving of the Holy Spirit to people to accomplish tasks the Lord has set out, things that he needed done his way. And so he gives us measures of the Spirit there. In the New Testament, we see Jesus in the Gospels promising to give the Spirit to his disciples. And then the, the first day of resurrection, when he appears to them behind the locked doors, absent Thomas and Judas, what he does is he breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. But then he tells them to wait until they're clothed with power from on high. And then we get what we had last week, which is the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then what we see throughout the book of Acts, and what we see in the epistles of Paul particularly, is the work of the Holy Spirit, the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in forming and growing God's church on the earth. And, and do we believe in the, in the continuing presence and action of the Holy Spirit today? Do we believe it in the same way? That becomes one of the huge disagreements in Christianity. Is do we believe in the, the present day working of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or do we not? Do we believe there are still prophets? Do we believe there are still tongues? Do we believe there are still those gifts operating in the church today? And so that, that's just a question within the church. If we believe in the present action of those gifts or if we don't believe in the present action of those gifts. I do. I personally do. I've seen healings. I've been involved in, in things. I've listened to prophetic words. I've received prophetic words. I, I know what these things look like. And I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe in the interpretation of tongues as well. I believe in all those things. And I believe the church needs those things, to be perfectly honest with you. I believe that church needs the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe the, that the Holy Spirit, kind of that, the, that present activity, I don't believe that ended with the canon of the uh, New Testament being put into place. I believe there's more than that. And so that, that just means that I believe things that some people don't believe, but I've seen these things. And that's the reason that I give testimony to them, is because I've seen these things and I've been around them and I've experienced them. And so when, when we confess, though, that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son, then we're confessing the, that, the, the Trinity. We're con completing our confession. We're saying that he has also spoken through the prophets. In other words, we're laying hands on the Bible, too, and on those prophets who, who prophesied to Jesus and about Jesus, and who prophesied about a great many other things. And then we say we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Well, if we can believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we can certainly believe that there are not three gods, but they are three in one. We have one God with three, ma not manifestations, that's not right. Three different persons. 
And so if, we can, if anybody could look at the church right now and say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, well, you have a good imagination. But you have the right imagination because the reality is, is that, that it's the spirit that pulls us all into one, whether we're in different denominations, whether we worship together, and in many cases, whether we disagree with each other over certain things. We're still one holy Catholic and apostolic church because of this confession, because we agree on that confession of the Trinity and the work of each person of the Trinity and, and that they're all coordinated one with another. And so we, we believe in the economic Trinity, which, is, which means that each has a role and, and does a thing. And so, but, but it doesn't mean that they're, they're not in perfect harmony with one another. Jesus doesn't do something, he says, unless he sees the Father doing it. And the Spirit's going to lead us into that same kind of life and experience of walking with him is the promise that Jesus makes. And we see in the first lesson today, which is Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, and I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time in these lessons today per se, um, not that they're unimportant, but, but that the doctrine is, is a little more um, easily seen if we talk about it directly rather than sort of indirectly through this. Because in the Isaiah passage, what we see is, is that Isaiah is in the temple. And it's the year that the King Uzziah died, and he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then above him were the seraphim. And they called, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We can talk about God's holiness all we like, but what Isaiah is saying here is, I've seen it with my own eyes. And when I saw that, I realized what kind of man I am. I'm a man of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips. However good a man I thought I might be before I walked in here today, I don't think that anymore because I don't compare myself to people anymore. I'm now comparing myself to holiness, to God himself. And woe is me. Will I live and survive this encounter, which is exactly the experience the Israelites had at the foot of Mount Sinai. And exactly the reason they told Moses, hey, we've heard enough. Why don't you go up there and be our representative from now on? You speak to him. We'll just do whatever he says, but you speak to him. And it's the greatness of God, but the holiness of God that shines through in this. And at that point, Isaiah is undone, undone because of what he's seen and because of the holiness of God. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Really? Really? Because the hot coal touched his lips? His guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for? Is it that easy, really? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's from the altar. What it, would, what it would represent them was that it's coming from the, the sacrificial altar and, the, and or the altar of incense. And so he has touched his lips. And why did he touch his lips? Because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so the sin that he confessed is taken away and atoned for. 
at that time. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. And so that, that last pronoun in the question is, who will go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Is that just linking together the seraphim and him? Are they sending or is somebody else sending? No, it's not the angels who send human beings to do things. It's God himself, God alone, who sends people to do things. And so we get somewhat of a clue there when he says, who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And why is it important that he recognize that his lips are unclean? And why is it important that his lips be cleansed? And it's because that is the role of the prophet then is going to be able to speak truth to people for God. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon him. And so his lips needed to be made clean in order that he might proclaim that message. James says the same thing, right? James talks about the tongue and taming the tongue and how the tongue can and should be used versus how it actually is used. And I've, I've mentioned this before, and I've never done a full series on it, which, which I should probably, and that has to do with this sin of leprosy. And you probably just raised your eyebrows when I said that and said, what do you mean sin of leprosy? Well, that's the point, and the point in the Old Testament and the way that Jews understand leprosy in the Bible is different from what we know today as Hansen's disease. It's a totally different thing, according to the rabbis, and always has been. It, it's a sin of, of speech, it's the sin. I mean, remember the first person who gets leprosy, right? It's Miriam. Why did Miriam get leprosy? Well, because she raised herself and exalted herself to be equal with her brother Moses and spoke against him. And because of that, God gave her leprosy. And so they see that as the model for what that, that leprosy is. And the cure is not simply to be symptom-free. It then requires you to go make a sin offering. It requires you to make a sacrificial sin offering in order to atone and certify and complete the cure and the restoration to the people. But, but while you're suffering from it, you have to be outside the community. And so you lose the right of community because you compromised the community by speaking against the community. That's the way they understand it. And Jesus affirms that, right? So when the lepers come to him, he sends them away and he sends them to go to the priests well as they go then they're healed but when they get to the priest what are they going to have to do the priest is going to see it he's going to ask them how they were cured and then he's going to make them do the sin offering for that and so that sin of leprosy is the sin of the lips it's a sin of speaking against the people. And so for Isaiah to speak to the people, he's going to have to speak against the people at some level. But he's going to speak against them from God's perspective, not his own. But the power of the Holy Spirit then comes and cleanses his lips and prepares his lips to be an instrument of God, makes them holy so that he can speak God's word. And so we see this in there. And then the rest of Isaiah's prophetic career is that speaking to God's people on behalf of God. And it's a powerful and an important thing, and we need to be conscious and aware of that because we're a temple of the living God. The Spirit lives within us. So the Trinity isn't just a concept and a doctrine. No, it's, it should be a way of life, that we should be brought into the inner uh, joy and love of the Trinity through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, pulling us into that Trinitarian loving relationship. 
And, and that's what Paul says, right? He, he says that we've been offered an opportunity to come into that Trinitarian embrace. He says, so then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified in him. And so that we have the Trinitarian formulation there of bringing us into the Trinitarian relationship itself and dragging us into the life of the Trinity. And, and, and it's a life of worship. It's a, a life of, of mutual admiration and love. And it's the Holy Spirit living within us that does that and says we're fellow heirs with Christ who is our Savior, who is also God himself. And so the, the Trinity itself invites us, pulls us into that relationship and makes us whole. And it's intended, Paul says, to make us new. But if by Spirit, the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so the Spirit's intended to come and, and take over to the extent we allow it. it. To the extent that we are willing to accept God's Word and God's commandments for our lives. To, ex- to the extent we're willing to accept His definition of holiness and His prescription for our lives, then we can enter into the life of the Trinity. We can enter into and become true children of God. To the extent that we deny that His Word, His commands are good, and we deny that, that our, our obedience to those, then we fail to participate in the life of the Trinity. But the importance of the Holy Spirit living within us is to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment in order that we might then live as God would have us live in joy, not seeing his commandments as burdensome. No, we would see them the same way he does. That's the point of the Trinitarian formulation with the Holy Spirit living in us, is that we would see those as good. Anything that that sounds like a restriction would suddenly become life-giving and freedom. And so we we would enjoy the freedom we've been given within the restrictions that he's given as well. It, it's a new life that we're talking about, though. And it's a new life for every single human being who receives him. You shouldn't be the same. Your attitude toward things shouldn't be the same after you've encountered him and after you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You should be a new person, a new creation, a creation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying here in John 3, 1-17, to when he speaks to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is a a leader, a ruler of the Jews. And he comes at night and he says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's authenticating Jesus as a teacher, which is a pretty remarkable thing, considering he didn't grow up in the rabbinic schools. But the other thing is, is that no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus has appraised what Jesus has done at this point in, the, in his ministry, and said, I believe that is from God. So he has affirmed that it's the Holy Spirit working in Jesus doing these things, not what some will say later, which is there's some sort of an evil spirit. 
that Jesus is doing this from. So, so Nicodemus has made an appraisal, and he said, we know you're a teacher come from God. So he's affirmed him as a teacher. He affirms that he's come from God, and he does so on the basis of the signs that he's seen, and he accepts those signs as things from God. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is being born again. The Spirit has testified to him about the truth of these things. But he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. I mean, the only possible answer there is Nicodemus's answer. How can these things be? Which is the same question Mary asked when she was told that she was going to bear God's Son. How can these things be since I'm a virgin? So she pondered those things. Nicodemus is pondering the same thing. And, and again, it's birth. This, this mysterious birth. That, that's baffling to him in the same way that the mysterious birth of Jesus was baffling to Mary. Because th- th- these things don't make any sense. There's no predicate for this. We don't understand, based on our reading of Scripture, we don't understand what in the world you're talking about here. But Jesus is talking about being born of water and the Spirit. He's talking about baptism and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit as well. He says, unless you have both those things, then, then you can't get in. And you're not going to see this thing. But then he talks about being born of the flesh. And, and so... Well, Nicodemus says, you know, I, I think I got in by being born of the flesh, right? I think I got, I got in by being part of the covenant community. And Jesus says, no, it's a totally different thing. You've got to be born again, Nicodemus. Um, and and that's, a, that's a new life. And, and Jesus is not using some weird little metaphor here. He's talking about a powerful metaphor, a powerful metaphor of new birth. You can't and shouldn't be the same person you were before. It's not just added on to your life. No, it's making you new. It's what Paul says is being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of your mind comes by the power of the Holy Spirit because it allows you and leads you into new and all truth. And so that's what he means by being a new creation. Paul had that experience. We can see it clearly in Paul's life. that He became a new creation after what happened to him on the road to Damascus and after the laying on of hands by Ananias. And so we are then invited to, to become part of the life of the Trinity and carry out the mission of God on earth. And so Jesus answers him and, and basically says, you know, you, you couldn't understand these things because you haven't been reborn in that way. You haven't been born of the Spirit. Nobody had been born of the Spirit yet. And, and he, but he points to himself and says, no one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus, this is God on earth. God became man walking among us. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him have eternal life. And there's only one way we can believe in him. And that's for the Spirit of God to fall on us and convict us of that truth. In the wilderness, Moses lifted up the serpent because the serpent was the problem. The people had rebelled and God sent serpents among them, fiery serpents. And, the, and people were dying because of the bites of the serpents. And so he, he, Moses cries out to God. God says, God says, do this, make a, make a bronze serpent and hold it up on a stick. And everybody who looks on it will be saved and healed. In the same way, this, this whole tongs of, uh, with coals of fire from the altar purify and atone for sin. 
with Isaiah the same way here. Now, if I gaze on that, I'm going to take a chance, right? I mean, if you tell me that's the solution, I'm going to question whether that could possibly be the solution to the snake bite is to look at something. But it's the only chance I've got. And so it's not necessarily about faith. It's, it's, it's hopeful faith that you look on that. But Jesus, Jesus says, here's the thing. I, I'm going to compare myself and the work of crucifixion that I'm going to do to that. Because what's the problem? The problem is sin. The problem is me. And so what happens? God takes the form of man, which is sin, and takes all that on himself. And so our call is to have faith in him, and, and that's possible empowered by the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way I can believe that's true. And the reality behind that and the fact behind that is nobody believed it on the day of the resurrection. It was the giving of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring on Pentecost that caused those people there that day to believe. To believe in that incredible story of Jesus being crucified to take on our sins. And what was the solution, Peter said? Repent and be baptized. That's it. That's all you have to do because you've received the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, go take care of the water part. Go be baptized. And the beauty of it is is that God so loved the world that he created, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The love that carried Jesus to the cross is the love of the Father sending his son. And the love of the Father who sends also his Holy Spirit that we might know these things are true. And in those truths, we might participate in his joy and that we might also participate by being heirs in his eternal kingdom. Let the spirit of adoption cry to you from you this day, Abba, Father.